Thanks for tuning in to WIHI. Patient safety and hospital flow are prominent topics here at IHI, but we know that more needs to be done to adequately support patients with behavioral and mental health disorders. That's why we're proud to invite you to this year's IHI National Forum. This year, we're offering multiple options for you to learn about leading strategies for rethinking behavioral and mental health care. IHI's National Forum is being held this December from the 8th to the 11th in Orlando, Florida. I'll be there in my blue shirt, as will several of today's guests and a host of speakers from past WIHI programs. To explore sessions and reserve your spot, head to IHI.org NF. That's NF for National Forum. Now, here's WIHI. With all the work underway to advance behavioral health integration in some areas of the U.S. healthcare system, that's easier said than done. For instance, most hospital emergency departments faced with a lot of behavioral health-related emergencies tend to view landing in the ED as an unfortunate mismatch, a consequence of individuals having nowhere else to go when in crisis, or maybe choosing not to use outpatient and community services. This understanding of the problem, experts say, only scratches the surface of what's going on and may mask missed opportunities. Indeed, these same experts say if EDs got more involved in behavioral health treatment, they'd likely see patterns change over time, and that includes less dependence on the ED. So that's what we're going to unpack on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. This is an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We're offered live and as an archived edition on IHI.org and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. The panelists on this edition of WIHI worked together for 18 months to test their visions and theories of change, figuring out the unique position emergency departments are in these days to initiate care and perhaps be part of a more effective web of support for behavioral health patients. All right, let's get to our panelists. Joining us by phone, we have Arpan Wagre. He is a geriatric psychiatrist, chief medical officer of Wellbeing Trust, and executive director for behavioral medicine at Swedish Health Services. Arpan also serves as co-chair of the Providence St. Joseph Health Behavioral Medical, excuse me, Medicine Clinical Performance Group. Welcome, Arpan. Good good to have you with us. Also with us, Scott Zeller is Vice President of Acute Psychiatry for the Multi-Specialty Medical Partnership, Vituity. He was formerly Chief of Psychiatric Emergency Services of the Alameda Health System in Oakland, California, and that's where he developed an innovative approach to eliminate psychiatric patient boarding in the ED. A big welcome to you, Scott. All right, this is roll call. I mean, everybody got right, this. Good t- afternoon. Uh, <laughs> nice to be on. Uh, thank you, Matt. Okay. Just giving you guys a hard time. Scott Sirico yeah. is a registered nurse at Hogue Memorial Hospital Presbyterian with 20 years experience. 
This Scott is currently the Education Coordinator for Emergency Services and Neurobehavioral Health. A welcome to you, Scott from Hogue. Thank you, Matt. It's an honor. Okay. And last but of course not least, we have Marie Schall, a senior director at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. She has over 20 years of experience leading innovation and improvement projects, as well as scale-up initiatives in healthcare and community-based settings. And Marie is currently directing integrating behavioral health in the emergency department and upstream fondly referred to here as ED and UP, and that's what we're going to hear more about now. So welcome, Marie. Thank you, Madge. Okay, so we're going to start off with Scott Zeller. He's going to do some uh, level setting for us. How do, how do we get here? Scott, for quite a while now, the dominant change idea, it seems, in the emergency department with respect to patients with behavioral health issues has been to more effectively reduce boarding, that sounds like an okay thing, and to transfer patients out as soon as feasible. So let's get going by you telling us what's wrong with that picture. Well, thank you, Madge. Uh, yeah, so what we're seeing is is a, an enormous increase in people with behavioral health emergencies coming to the emergency department. It's gone up from where it may have been something like one in every 20 patients a few years back to where in some uh, more recent studies, there it's as much as one in six of every patient coming to the emergency department is there for a behavioral health emergency as their their chief complaint. So you can see some of the the uh, the 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 amazing numbers here uh, that uh, just on this one slide, one of the, the really most mind-boggling ones is that people coming to ER for suicidal ideation or what we call suicidality after a suicide attempt, that's up over 414% in just the last decade alone. These folks tend to end up staying in the emergency department a long time um, because as Madge had, re had, had referenced there, um, the, the traditional approach has been, especially from the days when, when the, these patients weren't that common, they felt it really wasn't a, an emergency department role to work with these folks. So, so if they felt they were acute enough, the, they mostly would maybe give them some sedation, but really try to find them an inpatient hospital bed to send them to. When there was plenty of inpatient beds available, maybe that, that approach made sense, but Currently, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense uh, at all. And I'll show you, if you go to the next slide, what some of the, uh, the ramifications have been. Um, kind of still following the same approach that if you're acute, we're going to try to find you an inpatient bed has led to something we call psychiatric patient boarding. And what's happening is psych patients are kind of staying in ERs, often without any treatment at all, just waiting for transfer to a psych facility or psych hospital. Um, this is a long length of stay, depending on where you are around the country, it could be anywhere on average from eight hours to over 30 hours. Sometimes we hear patients staying weeks in ERs waiting for transfer to bed, but just the average patient is preventing over two, like almost two and a half bed turnovers in the ER. So because the patient is sitting there waiting for transfer, they're not really getting any help. It's not really good for them, but it's also not good for other people who are out there in the waiting room who might be there for any number of reasons, you know, chest pain, 
flu symptoms, a, a, anything that you'd come to the ER for, they can't get in because the beds are full with psych patients who aren't getting any help anyway. So it's not a good thing for the patients. It's not a good thing for the hospital either. And it's actually a financially costly thing for hospitals. They're on average losing about $2,500 for every patient that they're boarding for psychiatric reasons. You go to the next slide. So what is leading to all this? Like I said, one of the one of the first things is has been this belief that the ED is not really the right place for these people to come to. However, even though there may be outpatient programs or other crisis services, um, they really don't aren't have the capacity to work with high acuity patients, which tend to be a lot of the people who end up boarding. People who are acutely suicidal, acutely agitated, have high degree of psychosis symptoms, uh, who uh, are very dangerous or have a history of violence, have comorbid substance abuse issues or are acutely intoxicated or in withdrawal. All these kind of things can, can end up meaning that really the emergency department or at least a hospital level of care is necessary. So if we've been thinking that we just need to find a place to throw these people somewhere else, we would never do that with other hospital uh, emergencies. So if you know people came to the hospital with, let's say, an asthma attack, we wouldn't uh, take them into the back and have them sit down and say, okay, well, sit tight. We're going to find you an asthma hospital to transfer you to. We would try to get them the care that they need and hopefully relieve that asthma attack. Fascinatingly enough, the same thing can be true for psychiatric emergencies. So there's a lot of mistaken assumptions around mental illness that you can't treat it in the emergency setting, but actually it can be. People historically have had a lot of stigma about mental illness, afraid to ask for help. Hopefully some of that is being lessened in uh, more recently. There's also been a lack of standardization of how EDs will care for psychiatric emergencies. You could go to two ERs in the same town, it could have a totally different approach. And care settings aren't really working really well where ERs are integrating with other psychiatric programs, psychiatric crisis programs, other opportunities. The thing that's important to remember is that federal law defines psychiatric emergencies where somebody's dangerous to themselves or others as equivalent to a medical emergency. They, they, so an ER can be, and in fact, is an appropriate place for people with high acuity, dangerous symptoms to go. So rather than as some you know people have tried to wish this problem away or the increased numbers of patients saying, oh, if we only could find that one magic program, these people would stop coming. It doesn't look like that's going to happen. And you wouldn't say that about cardiology patients. You'd be trying to find a way to provide better cardiology care. So maybe the better answer and what we've been trying to look at for the last 18 months with ED and up is it, maybe it's time to start taking ownership of these patients and find the best way to treat them. And in fact, if we do that, we're going to actually get a lot of better outcomes. One thing we know from our own research is that the great majority of psychiatric emergencies can be resolved in less than 24 hours if you start treatment right away. So the real key is the treatment approach. Next slide, please. So there's some simple things that EDs can do that, that just change it and kind of, if you start thinking of things like we're gonna treat an asthma attack, we can treat psychiatric emergencies, but we should do it in a trauma-informed way. I think we're gonna be talking a bit more about that later, so I won't go too deep into it, but just recognize that we need to be 
patient-centric and thoughtful and caring in our approach and not stigmatizing and not triggering patients uh, and making it actually, there's a lot of data showing that ER treatment can actually make patients' psych symptoms worse or more agitated. We need to actually do things in a different way. But we do need to take ownership and consider psych emergencies the same as medical emergencies and start treating them. And we can do things like there's no reason we do a medical clearance and then do the psych part. You can do the psych part and the medical assessment simultaneously. It's all part of a medical evaluation. Next slide. There's uh, you know, a lot of history uh, has had patients with psych symptoms come into ERs, and the first place they go is for a blood draw. And that might be necessary for some places to get admitted for inpatient. Maybe there's an assumption that everybody needed to get a blood draw, but when you think about it, if we're going to avoid uh, the need for hospitalization in the majority of patients, we shouldn't be traumatizing people by going after them with, with a needle before we even know if they're going to need it. Um, and there's a lot of people who are afraid of needles, and that's one of the things we're talking about that can make people's symptoms worse. Absolutely no reason to send somebody to get their blood drawn until we absolutely know it's necessary. We don't want to make things worse. And the other thing is that we don't want to, this is a big big change, is that we can actually start treatment in the ER. Instead of just holding somebody, maybe uh, giving them sedation, we can find ways to start appropriate treatment, often involving medications, You can using medication algorithms. And what will happen with that is a lot of people are going to get better, and that's going to change your disposition decision. So you could take a look at somebody when they first come in, and maybe they look very acute. But if you start treatment a few hours later, they're going to look maybe looking a lot better. And instead of needing to be hospitalized on an inpatient unit, perhaps they can go to a community program. And that's a win-win for everybody. So the idea is that one of the main things we need to change is don't just take a snapshot and say, this is what the decision is. Going back to that asthma analogy, somebody coming in having difficulty breathing, you'd look at them and say like, oh, gee, they need to be hospitalized. But if you give them a nebulizer, Maybe they're breathing really clearly a couple hours later, and then maybe they're okay to go home. The same thing can happen with emergency psychiatric conditions. And I think the next slide somehow matches is a uh, is a dupe. <laughs> All right, so we're gonna thank you, Scott. Um, and this is Scott Zeller. We've just been hearing from. Uh, we're we're now gonna thank you so much, and we're now gonna move on to Marie Shaw, uh, who's uh, directing this initiative that Scott alluded to. We've been talking about it, EDN Up, and uh, the type of initiative Marie uh, Scott was just referring to. Um, in many ways is a signature way that IHI partners with others to test and refine best practices, uh, often working with a smaller number uh, of health systems and teams to see uh, how things go and to refine, and in this case, uh, behavioral health integration in the ED. So tell us about uh, ED and up at least some of the highlights. Thanks, Marie. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Madge, and I hope that everybody can hear me uh, clearly enough. So exactly, Madge, as you've described, um, IHI has engaged over the past 18 months with eight uh, hospitals and health systems, and we were funded in this uh, initiative through the Wellbeing Trust. Um, and uh, the um, the uh, objective of this uh, learning uh, community was uh, to really develop a theory and to test that theory about what it's going to take 
uh, to address the issues and the challenges that Scott was outlining. And actually, in Scott's uh, presentation, he highlighted many of the uh, key elements of the work that we've been doing. But I just wanted to give a little bit of background about uh, the development of the learning community um, and what we've been doing over the last 18 months is really in the middle of this uh, first uh, slide, which is phase two, which is the engagement of those health systems in the actual testing um, of, uh, of changes to help address the, uh, the challenges. It began um, earlier when we engaged in what we call content development um, and talking with um, uh, experts like Scott and others and looking at what's known about how to address these issues. Um, and um, from that, developed the theory and then engaged uh, together with the participating uh, hospitals and health systems. And we're now in phase three, which is harvesting and pulling together everything that was learned through that effort. So if you move to the slide, the next slide, this is an overview of the theory of the set of changes that these health systems engaged with us uh, to test and to learn more about. And... Um, the key, uh, I just want to draw your attention to the key uh, four, what we can call buckets or primary drivers, um, uh, process, provider culture, patients, and partnerships. So these will, I think, echo uh, the remarks that Scott was making in terms of the things that um, are known about how to really address the challenges um, of mental uh, health and uh, substance abuse patients in the ED. So uh, things like um, uh, improving the ED processes, things like Scott mentioned, uh, using smart medical clearance um, tools, uh, using assessment tools and uh, tools to assess patients' agitation level and be able to address their needs more quickly. Provider culture, uh, which we're going to be hearing about a little bit later on, but it's focusing on what staff can do to de-escalate situations, to provide compassionate and caring um, care uh, to patients, to develop more um, uh, calming and uh, supportive environments uh, within our EDs. But engaging with patients and families, the third P in our model, um, means uh, trying to uh, uh, engage with patients and families to obtain their feedback about the process, uh, about their care, and be able to uh, make adjustments and improvements in that. And it also means, and has meant for the teams in the learning community, engaging with patients in the design of some of the changes that um, the uh, teams were working on. Our fourth P is around partnerships, because we know that solving the crisis within the EDs, um, it cannot be done just within the ED or the hospital itself. Uh, it requires the partnerships with community, um, with community agencies, com uh, other community providers. And so here, our teams have been working on things like streamlining the referral process, um, making it possible for patients to have appointments in hand when they leave the ED so that they can follow up with a community provider. So really trying to, uh, to tighten the, the, uh, the care system um, so that people uh, don't uh, fall through the cracks and have to return to the ED unnecessarily. So those are some of the high level of the four buckets of uh, care that we've been working on. And um, it's really, we feel that the uh, the driver around uh, creating a trauma-informed culture um, is really key. If you move to the next slide, one of the ways that we did that was by 
taking a patient-centered perspective about what this process is as patients come into the ED. So we might, you know, view it from a sort of a technical point of, okay, the patient comes into the ED, they're triaged and assessed, their treatment begins, and then they're um, discharged and supported with the next level of care. But we said, well, look, what does that really look like from the patient perspective? So when patients come in with psychiatric emergencies, they're really saying, help me. Um, and how can we respond to their needs and their requests uh, for help by the way that we're designing our care processes? They're asking and saying, help me find comfort and safety. So how can we do that within the process of being finding out what their needs are, what their uh, condition is, um, and how to best help them? And beginning initial treatment from their perspective is relieving my distress. Um, I'm in pain. Um, I need help, and what can be done uh, now to help me? And then making sure that as I'm leaving uh, the ED, that there is going to be support there for me and helping me cope with my uh, conditions and my distress long term. So this has really become uh, the centerpiece uh, to uh, any of the changes that the that the teams have made. And I'm going to stop there, Madge, because um, I'm really excited to get to hear from Scott Sirico as one of the teams in the uh, learning community and have him talk about what they did uh, at home. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Marie. And as folks will know, you can see there are a lot of links in the chat uh, to learn more about the initiative and wonderfully, just in time uh, for our WIHI, uh, Mara Arpan and Scott Zeller co-authored an article published in uh, Healthcare Executive uh, that we can also share with you that gives you uh, even more grounding and reinforces a lot of what you're hearing. And Vicki, you'll get that link in there too. All right, let's indeed turn to Scott Sirico. Scott, tell us about Hogue Memorial and why Hogue decided to get involved in this initiative. Thank you, Madge. Um, first, I just want to say how honored I am to be on this panel and to be on the panel with Dr. Zeller. He is one of my heroes and is one of the um, leading um, uh, sources to what Hogue did before um, we were involved with IHI and, and piloted a trauma-informed care uh, approach, um, and still we use um, his recommendations to continue to find ways to treat these patients that come to our um, ER with behavioral health um, crisis um, and how we can treat them versus just letting them sit in our ER um, for hours on end. So like he said, in the past, these patients come in, they need to be medically cleared, they're in crisis, they want to hurt themselves, hurt somebody else, or they're just in a exacerbated state in their, in their schizophrenia or whatever, and we would take them in, we would do lab draws, we would do their um, uh, urine uh, drug screen, and then we would wait for an evaluation from our CAT team and let them sit for days waiting for a bed in our county facilities, and that wasn't working. So um, Hogue was able to... Um, um, implement many different um, projects to help, but the most uh, uh, the most transformational one was trauma informed care. So the first slide just shows Hogue's um, behavioral health involvement in Orange County. So Hogue Hospital in 2017, and these numbers have not changed in 2018, and they will not change this year. Uh, we saw 5,994 behavioral health patients in 2017. 
uh, St. Joe's, UCI, and Mission Laguna were the next three highest ERs in seeing behavioral health patients. Um, the difference was St. Joe's, UCI, and, Mich- and uh, Mission Laguna have inpatient uh, psychiatric facilities. We do not at Hope. So we would have to hold these patients here until we could transfer them. So we were seeing the most, and we asked ourselves why. Why do we see the most? And we we, we came up with a couple different things. First of all, um, as far as uh, emergency rooms go, there's a there's a uh, a term wall time or holding the wall. And um, in Orange County, we average about 23 minutes of wall time. But Hogue and Hogue, um, we have two facilities: Hogue Newport, our big facility, and Hogue Irvine, our small facility. And both of uh, our facilities have a wall time of less than 10 minutes. So uh, EMS providers uh, definitely will pass other ERs to come to our ER, knowing that they can offload their behavioral health patient to us. Um, uh, if you want to go to the next slide, um, we also um, oops, there we go. We also took data each um, every six months, and we looked at how many patients we saw in our ER each month. And we you know we see an average of about sixty eight hundred a month, and about six percent of those patients um, are behavioral health, which is not a large number in the sense of how many patients come in. But when you look at the fact that they have to be taken to a room. They have to be, um, uh, you know, um, put on a hold, first a 24-hour medical hold, and then, you know, if need be, a a 5150 or 72-hour detention, um, that um, 23% of our ED beds are taken up by behavioral health patients 24-7, 365 days a year. And when we expanded our Irvine ED from an 18-bed to a uh, 36-bed ER, 25% of their beds are taken up every day by behavior health holds. So that was a very big impact on the ED. And like Dr. Zeller said previously, we just did the labs and waited. We did not treat them. But what we did do is we hired psychiatrists to um, work in the emergency room Monday through Friday. They would start treatment. They could release holds if the patient was um, no longer needing a psychiatric admission uh, to a facility. Um, and that was fine. We had a hard time holding on to those uh, doctors because they would soon be pulled by our inpatient to treat the secondary diagnosis upstairs. So they began to uh, become overworked and underpaid. But we have a good team now. But then we were given the opportunity um, to look further into what we're not doing and try a different approach. So if we go to the next slide, I'll just give a quick overview of what we found. We found that we had an increase of security calls or code grays. Our frontline staff in every single survey said, we don't feel supported, we don't feel safe. Our workplace uh, uh, violence or or workplace um, injuries were on the rise. And I'll share our numbers in just a second, but they were astronomical compared to what they are now. We weren't treating the whole patient and we knew that. we weren't. Uh, we did not have the appropriate resources to transition these patients from an inpatient to an outpatient setting unless we could get them into a psychiatric inpatient facility. Um, and so, um, and 33% of our patients, our inpatients, had secondary mental health diagnoses that we weren't treating. We also realized that um, that uh, we have 7,000 homeless people. In Orange County, California has 25% of the nation's homeless. We have 7,000 of those currently in Orange County. Half of them are unsheltered. Um, and we now have new uh, California guidelines of what we need to do for them 
secondary to their mental health issues before we can discharge. Um, the average hold time in Orange County for a behavioral patient was 15.9 in 2017. It's now actually up to about 19 hours of hold time um, NEDs in Orange County. Hoags is 24.8 because we are such a large facility and we do offload those patients and, and put safety sitters with them that the county will pull from smaller hospitals and place those patients before they place ours, which is just a fact of life that we've come to know. And then, of course, we have a very high suicide rate. I know the numbers are higher this year than the, than the stats that I have. So if we go to the next slide. So um, becoming a member and, um, and uh, uh, with the IHI, we were uh, asked to pilot this trauma-informed care approach. And so we, we happily uh, piloted it. I was one of the um, first to be asked to train. We were going to pilot it at our Newport ED, our large ED. So, um, so we were, um, uh, I, I went to the train the trainer course. I learned all about this trauma-informed care. And trauma-informed care uh, comes out of SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health uh, Service Agency, and um, or administration, excuse me. And SAMHSA basically was, you know, says that, that all um, behavioral health patients, um, or I'm sorry, that 90% of behavioral health patients have suffered from some kind of trauma or abuse in their early life, that they've had some kind of adverse childhood event that, um, that changes and um, their functioning and their brain functioning and causes them to suffer from a behavioral health um, diagnosis. It also puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that behavioral health is a diagnosis. It's not a behavior. It's not bad parenting. It's not bad decisions in college, but it's an actual diagnosis, just like a heart attack, just like diabetes. And that when these patients come to the ER, rather than asking, what's wrong with you when you're screaming at me, spitting at me, swinging at me, it's asking, what have you gone through? It's trying to learn as much as I can about the patient, find out something personal about them that I can use to connect with them when they amp up, when they start to get aggressive. It's increasing my awareness of what's going on in the emergency room. And since this pilot, we have found so many little things in our emergency room that actually trigger and re-traumatize these patients. Our security officers alone, our security officers wear uniforms and badges that are very similar to police officers. So if I have a behavioral health patient that has had a run-in with the police, they start to amp up when they see our security officers. So oftentimes I have to move them out of sight just to keep that patient from, from getting agitated. The alarms that go off in the emergency room, the overhead speaking, um, different sounds that are coming from one room to another, all of these things are found to, to stimulate, to trigger, and to, get, um, uh, to cause our behavioral patients to become aggressive, assertive, or, um, or anxious. Um, we look for the cause of the behavior. You know, we, many of our nurses have found that it's really easy once you find out that mom just came in and told our heroin overdose um, bipolar patient that he can't come home, that that's why he's on the ceiling screaming and yelling. And if we can address that issue, and talk to the patient about what we're going to do to help them so that we're not just going to throw them out on the street, that patient de-escalates very quickly, accepts our help, and we're able to give that kind of care. And then different ways of communicating. And the biggest thing trauma-informed care talks about is that empathetic um, uh, communication. It's, it's acknowledging that it's stressful, scary, um, and, um, and hard to be in the ER on a hold. It's letting that patient know that if you were in that situation, you'd probably be scared too. 
And then it's letting that patient know why they're there, what I can and can't do, and then sitting down and trying to give them something that they can hold on to, uh, you know, whatever it is, watching TV, a nicotine patch, a sandwich, whatever it is at that moment. I can't let you go. I can't let you walk outside and smoke, but these are the things I can do. And the patients really do respond once you empathize with them, once you show them that you're with them, that, that, that I know who you are. I know you're scared because you're here and your kids are at home. You don't know how they're doing. Let's call your spouse or your mother and find out how your kids are doing. All of a sudden, it changes the whole dynamics of that encounter in the emergency department. If we go to the next slide, um, I can show you some of our statistics. So we did the training last September and October. That was our initial training. We trained every RN, every EMT or ECT, and our secretaries or, or our clerical coordinators. And at the time, our workplace violence numbers, these are our, our employees that were being assaulted by patients. My tech that was cut in the throat by a nail file that the patient had hidden in their underwear band. It was my nurse that was thrown over a gurney and hurt her back. My sitter that was choked unconscious. It's those types. We had 12 to 18 reported every single month. And we did the training in September and October. November, we had five. December, we had five. January, two. February 2, and since then, we've had an average of five to six workplace violence every month. So we have decreased our workplace violence by over 50%. And that's kind of what Sam just said would happen. That, that, you know, that was their theory is that you, you, you know, change the way you view these patients and how you interact. You use a trauma-informed care approach, and you're going to decrease workplace violence. And they were right. But what they, what they didn't um, tell us, and that's the next slide, is we looked at our code grays and our, and our restraints, and we said, hey, did those go down too? And they actually did. They went down, a, they went down about 30 to 40%. And when we did have to use behavioral restraints, they were only on an average of 15 minutes. We were actually able to talk those patients out of restraints, whereas before we'd leave them there for 30 minutes before we'd even talk to them. So these were some of the results that we saw, but then we surveyed the nurses. This is a pilot program, so we have to survey the nurses and find out, what do you think? Did it work? Did it not work? And of course, the nurses are saying, hey, I feel safer. It's working. But then we started getting comments back, and the nurses said, you know, prior to this trauma-informed care, prior to this new approach, this was a population of patients that I couldn't help. The best I could do was put them in a room, sit security at the door, shut the door, and wait for them to be transferred, and just task them and do whatever the doctor orders. But I couldn't talk to them. I couldn't reach them. They wouldn't listen. And now I'm sitting on the gurney with them. I'm talking with them. A little three-minute encounter with them, and everything changes. They de-escalate quickly. They thank us. As a matter of fact, one of the nurses made a comment that, you know, as a nurse, we go through our year, and if we get thanked once a month by a patient, that charges us up for the next month because we don't get thanked very much. These patients thank you. These patients actually show appreciation. So, so this was the most, you know, astonishing result because our nurses are now engaged and they're in there with the patients. They don't just put them in a room. They're in there talking them down and letting them know that we're here for them. So we really were excited about the trauma-informed approach that we used. We were excited to integrate that with our psychiatry care or psychiatric care that we have now in the ED with we have we we also piloted the NAMI in the lobby. So the, the National Alliance for Mental Illness, we have NAMI members, 
people that either suffer from mental illness or are family members of such that come into our, we, it's called NAMI in the lobby, but they actually come into our ER. They'll go to our behavioral health rooms. They'll meet with the families. They'll meet with the patients. And they've had in the last year over 60 patients that they have connected to NAMI for support groups, counseling, therapy. They have a, a, you know events like bowling events that these that, that our patients when they get discharged they're showing up to because they want to get in with that group they want to have a, a, um, a social outlet that they can go to of people that understand what they're going through and that's been an amazing thing too so this whole program that, that that we trialed last year was so successful we then did a phase two with the ED over at Irvine and then um, we have now started and we're almost done. Today's the last day of training the rest of the inpatient nurses and staff throughout the hospital because our, our board of directors realized that all of our, our, our nurses were at risk of workplace violence. All of our nurses were hungry to find out how to take care of, you know, what can I do to take care of a behavioral patient? Um, how can I reach out to them? So we have now trained um, during our annual skills all of our inpatient nurses, ancillary services, dietary, social workers, PT, RT, you name it, um, the, the entire hospital will be complete by the end of November. And, you know, I, I, I actually have classes today teaching it, and I had them yesterday, and the nurses from the inpatient are like, thank you. We, you know, we do have a problem upstairs. We are being attacked by family members and, and visitors and patients, and we've never known how to talk them down or how to communicate and reach them. So we've changed our, our, our verbiage here at Hogue. We no longer use psych patient. We use behavioral health or neurobehavioral health patient. And we also, uh, we don't say we deal with them. It's an encounter. So when we, uh, we, we, when we have an encounter with a patient or an engagement with a patient, and those, just those terminologies in themselves have changed um, our perspective, have changed our um, outcomes. So it, it really has been quite a... Um, a successful program. We're very excited about it. Um, we're excited to spread it to our sister um, hospitals through Providence and, and uh, St. Joe's, and I hope that other hospitals in the nation um, take this program and run with it because it really does allow and give your nurses who are in this for the care, not the money, we all know that, the opportunity to help a patient population that historically we have not been able to help without specialized training. Wow, uh, Scott Sirico from Hogue there. Uh, so much and uh, so many patients and families, I'm sure, are very grateful for your sharing this very uh, encouraging story of all that has gone on at Hogue. So thank you uh, for running that down. Arpan, uh, you're in the great position now uh, kind of to tell us sort of how, draw out some themes here uh, from perhaps Scott Sirico um, and uh, anything else you've heard. Uh, what, what should be some of our important takeaways uh, from this work right now? Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Madge, and, and thank you. That's such such an inspirational way in which Scott described the work at Hogue. I, I think the most important thing is that there is hope. We we, we should remember that. It, it takes time. This work is hard, but improvements are possible. Now, based on the learnings of all the stellar work that happened in this initiative through all the learning uh, collaborative members, the sites, there's specific actions that hospitals and health system leaders can take to bring that positive change, not only for their patients, 
patients, their families, but also for the care teams in the ED. Now, we understand and recognize that this is tough because, you know, there are dwindling community resources, competing priorities, which often results in this lack of organizational attention to get us the resources to solve our day-to-day problems. However, it's, it's very clear that when health system leaders show their support by making behavioral health a core part of their population health strategy, uh, and they, they take specific actions, they free up staff time for these improvement efforts, they dedicate some resources, and then continually highlight how these changes improve outcomes for patients and the care teams, things start getting better. And we've seen fewer ED revisits, reduced ED length of stay, reduced restraint use, and, and reduced patient-to-staff assaults, as Scott just, just pointed out. Uh, but then I also want to build on, on my dear friend Scott Zeller's work. And as he so eloquently articulated, this is, it's extremely important for us to change our culture and start, stop talking about those patients as those patients out there, but trying to think of them as our patients. Um, and, and building on the example that he gave for asthma, I think this is, it's very practical. There's, you know, somebody comes in with an acute asthma exacerbation. Uh, we, we start them on treatment, but then we go back and reassess them. And based on their response, we appropriately titrate uh, treatment to help stabilize them. Unfortunately, with most behavioral health patients in most parts of the country, it's a very binary process. You know, you assess and then you're either going in the hospital or out. And if you're going in, then you might wait for hours, days, uh, and there's no standardized approach to treat and stabilize. So I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, that's something that has to become a part of what we do. Now, uh, looking at two very concrete examples from the change package uh, that I would like to highlight and, and, you know, happy to answer more questions as we get into the chat section, um, things that are very important and very actionable, uh, starting off with simple things that we do in all our EDs, nursing triage and medical clearance. Now, Triage, you know, as a process within the emergency departments has been evolving since the early 70s. And it's, uh, you know, the scales continue to improve and, and they're pretty much based on the premise that, you know, it regularizes the intuitive process used by nursing staff in receiving patients in the ED. But all the, the roots of the ED triage have been in physical injury and illness, and it never catered uh, to patients with mental illness presenting to the EDs. So one of the changes that was tested was the Australasian triage scale uh, that provides the triage nurse an opportunity to make an informed assessment of the needs of uh, patients with mental illness. Um, and then another example, a very common thing that Scott Zeller brought up in his uh, talk was, was medical assessments. There's a lot of vari- variation in the way we, we assess people uh, for what patients with behavioral health conditions uh, for, for their medical clearance. And uh, sometimes, many times, we, we do things that are not good for the patient. We, we order labs and, and, and other kinds of tests that are not based in good science. Now, this is traumatizing for the patient, but it ends up, uh, you know, resulting in the patient being there for a longer duration of time doesn't really help them. Uh, There's also the other side of it, which is, you know, patients whom we used to refer to as frequent flyers, now many of us call familiar faces, and they come in, they have a primary psychiatric illness, and we could at times uh, attribute all their, their complete their clinical presentation to their psychotic decompensation when we could be missing things like lithium toxicity or other, other important medical things. So one of the other changes that was very important and something that I think can be hardwired across different parts of the country uh, was the SMART medical clearance that was developed in California. SMART, the acronym, um, you know, used for uh, uh, 
for the basic assessment piece. So well, this is an evidence-based approach, you know, that was developed through peer-reviewed articles, studies, uh, and in consultation with with experts in psychiatry and ER medicine. Uh, so. Yeah, you know, what I would say is that there there are a lot of different things that can happen, and as we've heard through the presentation, following the patient's journey, uh, there are several things that are going to be out of our control, uh, out of our sphere of influence, like lack of community resources and so on. But there are things that are in our control that we absolutely must hardwire. We must do, and it's it's our it's it's one of the most fundamental things that we're going to have to start doing as we we care better for this patient population. Thanks so much, Arpan. I appreciate that. There is so much to say, underscore, and draw from here. Uh, so big shout out to the panel for uh, at least putting out some very important highlights and, of course, for hearing Hoag's story. Uh, there was a question or has been a question, Scott Sirico, that came in. Uh, somebody is wondering about some of the training materials that you've used and uh, short of ticking them all off, uh, if there are some things even you want to uh, let us know about, we can add them to our resource document. Uh, I also don't, if they're, if the materials are proprietary, totally understand, but uh, there may be some really good things things that you've been using uh, that would be available to others. Um, what say you? Yeah, Madge, um, I definitely have um, received permission from my organization and have made available um, the first slide deck that we use, and I am also, I have forwarded, to be forwarded to the IHI, the current slide deck that we're using for the inpatients. Um, both of them, you start with um, where does trauma-informed come, uh, care come from? What does SAMHSA say? Then we go into the statistics of why we have this issue, why our hospital specifically could have X amount of patients. Then we talk about what resources we currently have because we want to make sure nurses know if I'm going to take a trauma-informed care approach, I'm going to um, try to, you know, help this patient instead of just hold this patient. Then I need to know what resources we have. And then we go into, we show a video it's a TED TED talk um, that is doc, um, is given by Dr. Nadine Harris Burke on acute uh, childhood um, uh, experiences, kind of the the meat and potatoes to the science behind why we can or how we can look at these patients differently and see their condition as an actual disease. Because a lot of times in the past, the stigma was they're a bad person, they did this to themselves, and that's so not true. We we all know that, but we want to make sure that that our nurses really, truly understand that. And then we go into what is trauma-informed care? What are the five steps to preventing re-traumatization? What are the triggers that our specific facility has that could be triggering this patient and how do we mitigate that? And we did this in a two-hour uh, training program. Um, we originally wanted to do it in four and have a lot of activities. Um, we kind of came down to doing it in two hours. Um, but Again, such great results and such great feedback from the nurses that we know that that is possible and it does work to do it like that. And again, I will share my slide decks with anyone um, who um, who would like to to look at them and and use them, you know, and modify them for their facility. That's very generous. Thank you. 
um, when we complete a WIHI the following Tuesday in particular, we send up a follow-up email to everyone who enrolled in the program, and it will remind everyone that'll be your cue or clue uh, to uh, check out uh, any additional resources that we have on IHI.org, uh, but we're keeping track of all of this, so be on the lookout, plus we've already got a bunch of really helpful links in the chat. And a reminder, you can download this chat. Uh, it gets posted to our website as well, but you can also download it when we uh, get off. So um, uh, there were two questions that I'm going to combine together and throw them at Scott Zeller. One uh, person is asking, step one, please, how do we uh, just get this kind of thing going? And another person is asking a question about leadership and uh, sort of what's that about? What key leadership in the hospital setting should one start with to help get these issues and solutions on the radar screen. So can I uh, start with you, Scott Zeller, on that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, both great questions. Um, I, I think that, uh, you know, first it has to just be recognized that there uh, is a problem and that it's something that can be uh, solved or at least mitigated, as, as Scott Sirica was saying. Uh, and often it needs a, cha a champion or somebody who maybe is the nurse manager of the emergency department or somebody who's a emergency physician there, or somebody who just really cares, maybe somebody who's listening uh, on this today and just say, you know what, we're not doing a great job. Look at this, these heart long stays that we're getting for these patients. We know their patient satisfaction is not doing well. We're having too many assaults. We're having too many restraints. Some of these things can be fixed by maybe just doing something as simple as doing, uh, you know, informed training. Uh, and looking at how your your setups are, maybe looking at when we come out with our change package from the IHI, how we can do some of these uh, standardizing processes using smart medical clearance, recognizing that these are all possible things can be done. It's not uh, something where you can uh, you know build Rome in a day, uh, but there are different things that you can do. And really, it just takes somebody saying, you know what, the way we've been doing it, we can do better. And I think you'll find there's a lot more people that uh, uh, desire to improve things than you might imagine. That, uh, yes. Would you agree with me on that, Scott Sirico? Please go ahead. Absolutely, I do. And, and really, that's what happened here at Hogue. Our, our ED director took lead on it and pushed it through. Um, and then it dropped in my lap, which I was happy to take, and then I kind of took lead. And then now we actually have an executive nursing director who is overseeing the behavioral health and trauma-informed care treatment throughout the hospital as this has progressed and shown great great results. So it definitely needs a point person. It needs uh, the buy-in of the entire administration of the hospital um, to understand that it's a culture change um, and um, to take that on and and you know, vow that your hospital will be a trauma-informed hospital. Um, I wonder if I could bring Marie in quickly. Um, Marie, we are, uh, it's clear that things are moving in the right direction at Hogue. Uh, what else can you tell us, even in general, about the other sites uh, for the work in ED and up in terms of some of their overriding results or progress there? Yeah, thanks very much, Madge. And 
um, uh, the other uh, participants in the learning community, depending on the where they focused. So as you know, as we talked about the overall change package, you know, some focus, uh, you know, more on the ED processes, some focus on the connections with the community partners. But depending on where they focus, uh, there are some early promising results um, in terms of reductions in overall length of stay um, for those that particularly focused on looking at um, the community partnerships, um, looking at the number of referrals that were made, and not only made, but kept. So looking at some of those uh, those data is really, really encouraging. Um, and so we're very excited about um, the results that we've gotten. And um, you're probably going to be saying some of this towards the end of the call, Madge, but um, we are, uh, as I mentioned when I was talking earlier, in the process of synthesizing and putting together uh, the learning from this uh, learning community. And we'll be coming out with a document in early January that um, is uh, how basically sort of you know how to, how to get started, how to how to how to do this in a lot more detail, um, and so we're excited to share that with with others um, as well. Well, that's terrific. I think we've uh, ignited a lot of interest on the program today. And uh, we'll just keep adding to the resources. I want to thank Vicki sitting across from me in the studio, who's grabbing at everything she hears as fast as possible. Uh, so all of it in real time, more stuff to come from Hogue and as Marie uh, was describing. Um, we are getting kind of close to wrapping up. So Marie, maybe I'll uh, just ask you, uh, we have our national forum coming up in December. Um, is there anything about this work uh, that will be on the agenda at the forum. Yes, Matt, there, uh, there is. There's a. Uh, we're having several sessions um, that are that reflect the work of the learning community. One is a half day session where we'll be uh, uh, hearing from other teams that were in the learning community and uh, presenting the overall the overall package and having and pe people will have the opportunity to go you know learn more about it and go into more depth on what we've done and what we've learned um, and that is going to be focused on uh, the community partnerships particularly okay. so we're looking forward to that and uh, there'll be other sessions uh, as well thank you Arpan, let me ask you something. Um, and first, and I also want to acknowledge uh, your affiliation with Wellbeing Trust and Wellbeing Trust, who has made this work uh, pro um, possible. And that's just been very, very uh, significant to bring all these uh, great people together. A lot of concern uh, in many communities that there aren't the resources out there for the health systems this is going to be bad preposition uh, grammar here to form partnerships with and uh, I, I wonder what your answer is uh, when somebody says well we'd love to you know form greater partnerships but the resources are maybe kind of scant in the community and that's one of the frustrations that's a that's a great question, Madge. And as as I think about it, I mean, given like the the role that I have at Providence St. Joseph Health, and we look at you know seven states and a lot of communities where we don't have a lot of resources, I think uh, one of the approaches that has helped us is taking more of a asset based approach as opposed to deficit based approach. So we look at communities and look at what's there first. 
So when you understand that and understand the gaps, we, you, there's a lot of opportunity in every community to optimize those relationships that, and, and resources that are already there. So I would say that that is some low-hanging fruit that we must focus on. And then when it becomes very clear that there are resources that are absolutely lacking, which is you know the case for many of our rural communities, uh, we built uh, a telehealth network to address that very issue. So we took 32 of the hospitals across you know various rural sites in seven states that had absolutely no psychiatric resources whatsoever, and created a telehealth network to to meet their needs. So there there are a lot of different ways in which this can be done. But I would say that optimizing, getting a very clear sense of what we have, and meeting with the community mental health leaders, whatever exists, optimizing that standardizing the workflows and then augmenting that leveraging technology and telehealth. If I can kind of jump in here on that as well, uh, totally agree with with what Arpan just said. And also what we found that a lot of sites uh, who initially will say, you know, anything we do isn't going to make a difference because there's really nothing out there in the community. When you really start focusing on this there, you might be surprised there's a lot more programs out there than may have been thought but they don't a- advertise on, on the, the evening news or with billboards. So you might do a little bit more research and get out there and find some things. Sometimes these programs are really great programs and, and surprisingly underutilized. So that's a that's very part of your, your approach, really looking out to the community and you can, you might find that you make some great partnerships and have some new opportunities for your patients. Very good point, Scott Zeller, uh, not to give up uh, just, you know, because you've maybe uh, assumed there aren't things and your information may be outdated. Maybe you have to ask around more and it may not be as obvious at first blush. Well, all right. I hate to bring it uh, to a close, but we'll just say this is a beginning. Uh, just a close for today, uh, Thursday, November 14th. A uh, big thank you to our panel, um, Arpan Wagre, Scott Zeller, Scott Sirico, and Marie Shaw. I've really enjoyed working with all of you to put this together. Uh, more to come in all the resources that you're hearing about. So thank you, audience, for being so engaged and interested. And uh, we hope to learn more about your work as well as things unfold. And uh, just to uh, give you a clue on WHI, we'll be sharing in December something from our national forum, a, a, a spotlight keynote. The subject matter is actually one that's very interesting. It has to do with how improvement uh, survives after leaders, some leaders leave uh, so that your improvement culture and initiatives aren't uh, so leader uh, specific. So I've got some really interesting thinkers on that subject, and I hope you'll look out for that in December. And of course, we welcome you to the National Forum. Uh, And Vicki put a link in there as well. All right. So you can find all the material on IHI.org as of tomorrow. You can find it on your favorite podcast uh, provider. And if you like what you hear, Think about writing a review or filling out a survey there. Uh, Don't forget, you can download all the stuff uh, also today. There's the slides here and the chat. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. Great group of people help make WIHI possible. They include Matt Morse, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, Mo Berry, and Val Weber. And I want to especially thank Deborah Bammel for all her help with this edition of WIHI. It's my 
my privilege to host this program that continues to be about spirited learning and improving health and patient care. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. Thanks for listening to WIHI. You just heard a podcast about emergency departments and how ED systems and staff can better learn from and treat patients with behavioral health issues. But before you go, I want to draw your attention to a recent publication in Healthcare Executive, Improving Behavioral Healthcare in the ED and Upstream. Featuring IHI's own Mara Laterman and several of today's guests, the publication describes four key changes hospitals and communities can take to better serve their patients and their staff. To read more, go to IHI.org resources and visit the publication section.